Well, good evening, Lakeside. It's great to see you. I am glad to be with you, and it's always exciting to be able to share the Word together. Well, I invite you, if you will, tonight to open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We're going to be looking at Jonah, and you go right past Obadiah. If you get to Micah, you've gone too far, and it's right in between. And tonight I want to bring a message I've entitled Jonah chapter 4, verse 12, in quotation marks, the most important verse in Jonah chapter 4. I want to begin by asking a question, and that is this. How do we respond when good things happen to bad people? If we're honest, I think most of us would say that it seems somewhat unfair, but there was one Nebraska senator who responded in the extreme. On September 14, 2007, Nebraska Senator Ernie Chambers was seeking to stop evil and injustice in the world, so he actually filed a lawsuit against God. Now, this lawsuit sought a permanent injunction against God's interference in the world. Senator Chambers said of God, He has allowed certain harmful activities to exist that have caused grave harm to innumerable people in the world. And this lawsuit charged God with causing fearsome floods and earthquakes, horrendous hurricanes, tornadoes, plagues, famines, devastating droughts, genocidal wars, birth defects, and the like. Chambers continued in his lawsuit saying God had allowed calamitous catastrophes resulting in widespread death and destruction to millions upon the earth without mercy or without distinction. Eventually, the lawsuit was dismissed on the grounds that the Nebraska court could not properly notify God since they did not have his address. I kid you not, you cannot make this stuff up. Senator Chambers disagreed with the ruling, saying because God knows everything, he should have known that he was being sued, and therefore he should have showed up in court. Now that's pretty scary coming from a senator, amen, wouldn't you say that? Of course, I think what's coming today is a little more scary, but we won't get into that. But before we criticize this senator for his irrational reasoning, we can at least give a nod to his honesty, can't we? Because the truth of the matter is, is that Chambers is not alone when it comes to those who would like to put God on trial. And isn't it true that when humanity is faced with the incongruities of life, when bad things happen to good people, or worse, when good things happen to bad people, God often goes on trial. Well, I think, beloved, that Jonah could be considered the poster child for this particular spiritual malady. Jonah, remember, was a prophet called by God to go to Nineveh to preach a warning to its citizens. And right from the start, we know that Jonah resisted. He rebelled against God, not going to Nineveh, but to Joppa, to catch a ship going to Tarshish. And in doing so, he exhibited, of course, blatant disobedience to God and thus was swallowed by a great fish. And in this less than stellar environment, God persuaded Jonah that continued disobedience was not going to be profitable for him. We know that Jonah repented of his rebellion and that the fish vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Jonah then went to Nineveh, completed his assignment, but he did so, we know, with a very hardened heart. And although Jonah now obeyed God, he was still very angry at God, and he was very resentful that God had shown mercy and compassion to the Ninevites. As we come to the end of Jonah, our narrative continues, and we see that the Ninevites had indeed repented, 
They were now worshiping the true and living God from the king on down. But the problem was this, that this miraculous repentance of a whole city in no way delighted this prophet of God. Rather, it disgusted him all the more. So we're going to break into Jonah actually in this last chapter, and I'm going to be reading the whole chapter, verses 4 through 11, and then we will be focusing in on verses 6 through 11 specifically. But follow along, Jonah chapter 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? And then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it, And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. And then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. And then the Lord said, You have compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? And then the narrative just stops. Now, as we come to these last six verses of Jonah chapter 4, what I'm going to bring out this evening are two results of Nineveh's repentance, because in these verses, it really becomes clear how different divine and human perspectives can be. Jonah felt justified in putting God on trial. God was justified in tempering Jonah's feelings. And I think these verses provide incredible insight for all of us when we feel the urge to put God on trial because of the incongruities that we face in life. So let's begin and see the first of two results of Nineveh's repentance. The first result of Nineveh's repentance is that it revealed Jonah's persistent irritation. Jonah's persistent irritation. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life." Now, as we come to verse 6 in this last chapter of Jonah, we find that after preaching to Nineveh, Jonah went out of the city, he went east of the city, and he sat down. And there he made a shelter for himself. He sat under it to see what would happen in the city. 
Now that shelter or that booth that Jonah constructed was probably made of intertwined leafy branches, the same kind of booths that would have been constructed at the Feast of the Tabernacles. And this booth, of course, would provide shade for Jonah for a short period of time, but under the hot Middle East sun, those leaves would quickly wither and they would fall away. And no doubt, this is exactly what happened as Jonah was sitting there, leaving him in distress. And of course, the sun was now beating down on him. And Jonah's state of mind was anything but congenial. He was sitting there, waiting, looking upon the city, and he was looking and waiting, hoping that repentance might cease and that evil might continue in Nineveh so that God would bring destruction on the city. That was his desire. And the irony here, beloved, is this, that the city is repenting as a whole, and here Jonah is sitting in distress. And so what does God do concerning Jonah? Well, we see it in verse 6. He appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah. And this is an unmerited act of God's grace, and it seems a little unusual that God would do this, because if anyone deserved physical discomfort and chastening, it was Jonah. You might expect God to make the sun even hotter. But here God gives him this plant to grow over him. And God did this because he had a lesson in mind for this angry prophet. This plant or this vine that the Lord appointed was probably a gourd or fittingly a castor oil plant. But regardless, it was a supernaturally growing plant that provided shade for Jonah against the hot Mideast midday sun. And if any of you have ever been to the Mideast and you have been there in the summer, you know how hot it gets. When one is in the desert or in extremely arid regions, next to water, shade is the most sought-after necessity. So God sought to exploit Jonah's extreme discomfort by providing him with shade. Now, some of the words in the text are worthy for us to note here. Notice that this plant appointed for Jonah's comfort is ascribed to Yahweh or Elohim, the Lord God. And of course, we know that Yahweh is the Hebrew name for God that is used in the Bible. And it ascribes to the fact that God is indeed the great I Am that he is sovereign, that he has always existed, and that he is with his people. And also the name Elohim is used to signify God's creative power. It shows God to be the infinite, all-powerful God who affects changes in men's hearts, that he is the Almighty One who sustains and who judges the world. This name of God is used to describe his work in causing this miraculous vine to grow and to provide shade which ultimately ministered to Jonah. Now in this object lesson to Jonah, God is putting Jonah in Nineveh's shoes, and he's trying to get Jonah to evaluate whether or not his anger is justified. God provided the very comfort and compassion to Jonah that Jonah wanted, withheld from the Ninevites. And notice how the focus is on Jonah and not on the city of Nineveh. Now that plant must have provided incredible relief to the prophet because scripture tells us here that Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Literally, this reads in the Hebrew that Jonah rejoiced over the vine with great rejoicing. This was a really great plant to Jonah. And he wasn't just happy. The Bible gives the idea that he was deliriously happy. 
And like I said, next to water, getting shade in the middle of the desert is one great thing to have. But the problem is, this is fascinating in one sense, but it's also tragic. Because you see, the prophet who was angry with a great anger over Nineveh's salvation in chapter 4, verse 1, now is rejoicing with great rejoicing over this plant. And in the comfort of the shade provided by God's wonderful grace toward him, Jonah could watch and wait for God's terrible wrath to annihilate the city of Nineveh. Are you starting to see the problem here? What God is exposing here, beloved, is Jonah's incredible self-centeredness, his selfish attitude, because for the first time in all of Jonah, he is happy. This is the first time he's happy in the whole book. And this emotion never came out when he was delivered from certain death, from the fish, or from the mass turning of people in Nineveh. He wasn't happy about any of that, but now he gets this plant over his head, and now he's happy. And obviously, he no doubt delighted in this physical relief that it provided. But incredibly, he also saw this plan as an indication of God's favor upon him. In other words, Jonah probably initially thought, see, this is God's vindication on me. Uh, God knows that I'm right. He finally is coming around to the way I'm thinking. He must also feel this disappointment toward Nineveh's repentance because after all, look how good he's being to me. It's as if Jonah is saying to God, Lord, I knew it, I knew it, I knew you would come around and see it my way. We never do that, do we? This comfort you provided me is surely a sign that your compassion is now in the right place. But God was in the process of teaching Jonah a very important lesson, and Jonah's supposed vindication would be as short-lived as that vine. Now, before we continue, I think it's prudent for us to pause and consider Jonah's attitude in light of our own attitude at times. Isn't it true, beloved, that we can often live in a state of persistent irritation or anger? Uh, we can live in this, this attitude of low-level anger or of irritation, and, and we can wish for or try and justify that God's judgment is deserved by others and much needed. And at the same time, we can admit that God's judgment is not wanted or needed for ourselves. Do we ever have that problem? God, they really need your judgment. Oh, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I really don't need it as much as they need it. Kind of goes along with Steve's message this morning, amen, of what the Pharisees thought of the tax collectors that Jesus was eating with. Sometimes our indignation, our moral outrage, our sense of fairness and justice is so strong and it can be so overwhelming that we feel God has no alternative but to act as we see fit. And when we think this way, the problem is we literally put God on trial. Now John Piper adds some insights concerning our own anger and bitterness and he says this, and I quote, what gives so much force to the impulse of anger in such cases is the overwhelming sense that the offender does not deserve forgiveness. That is, the grievance is so deep and so justifiable that not only does self-righteousness strengthen our indignation, but so does a legitimate sense of moral outrage. It's the deep sense of legitimacy that gives our bitterness its unbending compulsion. 
We feel that a great crime would be committed if the magnitude of the evil we've experienced were just dropped and we let bygones be bygones. Now, as much as we can look at this and stay detached from it in a Sunday evening service and say, oh, that's terrible. Don't we do this all the time? How many of you turn on the news? Come on, raise your hand. Anybody, nobody reads the news? Okay, how many of you do this when you turn on the news? I do. Do you? That is terrible. God. That's our human nature, isn't it? And we feel the indignation and the outrage of the sins of others. But it's amazing how often we don't put ourselves in the equation whatsoever. And I think, beloved, we do well to remember this because love in its truest form does not insist in its own way. It isn't irritable or resentful. It rejoices in right. It believes. It hopes. It endures all things. And we see here that Jonah and God did not see things the same way. Because this repentance by the Ninevite caused misery and persistent irritation in Jonah. And I want to suggest to us that it will cause the same thing in us until we fully embrace the grace of God extended to us and we begin to see the magnitude of our own sin. As Steve rightly said this morning, you know what, if you don't see yourself as the worst sinner in the room, then there's something wrong. Because all of us, we're under, as believers, at one time the condemnation of God. And now we have been extended His marvelous grace. Well, as I mentioned, Jonah's vindication was short-lived. God moved quickly to end Jonah's happiness and any ill-conceived notions that might have contributed to that happiness. And what did God do? Well, notice here in our text, in verses 7 and 8, first, that God appointed a worm to attack the plant. And we see here that this plant now quickly withered. Now, that would have been miserable enough, putting Jonah basically back in the same state of heat exhaustion that he was in before. But God took it a step further, and I want to submit that he took it a big step further. At daybreak, we're told that God appointed a scorching east wind to blow Jonah's way, and that must have added immense misery of the sun beating down on his head. And I get sweaty just thinking about this. You know, in most places, a wind or a gentle breeze cools you off, doesn't it? But a desert wind, beloved, is something altogether different. Because you see, when a desert wind blows, it just gets hotter. David and I had a great example of this back in 1996 when we moved our family from Northern California back to Florida. My wife and daughter flew back. They had no idea what a silver bullet they were dodging. But my son David and myself, with a dog, drove back from Northern California to Florida in a rider truck. And we had the joy of driving through the Mojave Desert. Now, we hit the desert about 6 a.m. one morning, and it was 92 degrees at 6 a.m., and I thought, thank goodness for air conditioning. Thank you, Lord. And a half an hour later, we lost the air conditioning. It went out. I thought, great. I am in the middle of the Mojave Desert, and we have no air conditioning. With the temperatures climbing, I soaked our T-shirts in water from an ice cooler, and I put them around our necks. And I told David, open your window and let some cool air in, and you're going to cool off, right? Wrong. Man, I'm telling you, we opened the windows of that rider truck, and it was like we got hit with a blast furnace. It was awful. 
It was so hot, it dried out our towels and t-shirts like in five minutes. It was suffocating. I think that's why they call it Death Valley. Desert winds, beloved, are scorching, and they contain particles of fine dust that are heated like cinders, and, and so they're not cooling, they're burning. And this is what Jonah would be experiencing. Now, we can see at this point what Jonah didn't see, that God had been using creation to appoint things all along. This was an appointed act of God, and four times the verb appointed is used by God in this book. God appointed the fish that swallowed Jonah in 117. God appointed the plant, chapter 4, verse 6. God appointed the worm, verse 7. And God appointed the wind. And these were all providences of God by which he intended to draw Jonah back into fellowship with him. Now this last appointment no doubt left Jonah delirious and faint. In fact, the verb is similar here to what we read back in 2.7 when Jonah felt his life ebbing away in the belly of the fish. And now realizing, again, realizing that God was not relenting in showing his compassion to the Ninevites. And now being completely exhausted and frustrated, Jonah once again begs to die. Does this remind you of any other prophet in the Bible? Like Elijah? who begged for God to kill him because he alone was left, remember? Literally, the text reads this. He asked his life to die. And the problem is this, that Jonah was failing to grasp the sovereignty of God, the care that Jonah had for his people. He saw himself, no doubt, as a failed prophet and now a failure to God. So he says, look, God, just kill me. It would be better if I was dead. Just take my life. Now, this isn't the picture of a mature prophet. It's the picture of a prophet who's obviously ready to give up. Noted this. It says of Jonah, he was now ready to say of his life, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. In other words, there's nothing left, Lord. You might as well take my life. And in spite of all Jonah had seen, there remained in him a hardened heart, a persistent irritation that was deep-seated and vengeful. And I've got to tell you, folks, when we carry that kind of attitude in our own hearts, it is extremely self-destructive. We often challenge God when we carry those kinds of attitudes against others. But let's move to the second result of Nineveh's repentance, because while it brought out Jonah's persistent irritation, it also brought out God's patient interrogation. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. After saying, death is better to me than life, God responds and it says, God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. And then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? Now let's look at this a moment because through this whole ordeal, God is trying to help Jonah recognize his divine character and his own inadequacies in understanding what God was doing. And once again, as he did back in verse 4, God asked Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry? And Jonah this time answers. 
He didn't before, but now he answers immediately and he says, Lord, I have good reason to be angry even unto death. And God's mercy towards Nineveh had made the prophet angry, and now Jonah was angered with God, who seemed to have withdrawn his mercy from him. But God rather was confronting Jonah's self-centeredness and his confused values. Remember that Jonah was made deliriously happy by the shade of the plant, while at the same time despising God for the people that he wanted to save. Jonah had greater concern for his own physical comfort afforded by a temporary vine than he did for the spiritual well-being of a whole city. So God's question to Jonah is really the central question of the whole book. And we could paraphrase it this way. Jonah, do you feel that you have a right to demand that I should favor you and not others? Now, we understand this from this book's perspective, but I want to suggest that this is often the way we think. We often, at times as believers, take on this self-righteous attitude that God really deserves to treat us a little better. We're Christians, we're working, we're serving. Certainly, we're in a little higher status than others, and, and others deserve God's judgment certainly much more severely than we do. And in Jonah's mind, if God asked that question, the answer that Jonah gave was, yes, yes. I have a right to be angry. You know, I fear that many of us in our own minds, in our prayer life, or at other times when we go through difficult circumstances, basically convey the same thing to the Lord. You know, we get angry with God. We think that we're being treated unfairly. We think that our circumstances are unjustified. We think that our level of self-righteousness or our work should merit at least a little more mercy from God than perhaps he should give to someone else. And listen, look at how severe this can become in our own minds. Jonah, a prophet, was so angry about this, he was willing to say to Almighty God, just kill me. And what is consistently amazing here is that God showed such grace and patience with Jonah. And I don't know about you, beloved, but I am certainly glad for the patience and the grace and the mercy of God. Are you? I mean, most of us would have to admit at this point, how much grace and patience would we show Jonah ourselves at this point? I know in biblical counseling, if someone says to me, I don't have to listen to you, I have to really work at grace and patience. But look at God here. Rather than just completely annihilate Jonah, God continues to drive home the irrationality of his thinking. And in verse 10, he says, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and for which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. See, the Lord is consistently tender here, but we do see a degree of forcefulness in his rebuke to Jonah. And he's trying to drive home Jonah's inappropriate expression of anger. He's admonishing Jonah for his inappropriate compassion for a plant for which he had done nothing. He didn't cultivate it. Jonah didn't encourage this plant to grow. There was no labor. There was no sacrifice. There was no toil, no care, no planning, no watering, no tending, no pruning. 
And God just says, Jonah, you have no right to make any claims concerning the plant. It was my gift to you of grace. You didn't do anything. But Jonah, we know, was grieving over the plant because he'd lost his shade and he was feeling sorry for himself. And isn't it amazing how feelings of irritation and anger towards God always arise from that internal self-righteousness and sense of what we deserve rather than getting the right perspective with God. Now, in addition to this, the Lord was trying to get Jonah to see the immense gulf between his worry over the perishing of a plant versus God's worry over the perishing of human beings. Not only did Jonah's anger over this express his misunderstanding of God, it also showed a tremendous lack of trust in God. And this is another area that I think we have to be constantly aware of because often as believers, isn't it true that we show more passion and concern over the incidentals of life than for the souls of those who are yet to be reached? You know, I'll never forget this one. I had my painting and decorating business. I was in construction in Illinois, and, and I remember there were some occasions when I was working, and the customer would be there in the room, and they would start talking to me, and I would work, and I would just keep working, and we would have a conversation. And then they would say something like this, well, I understand that you're a Christian, aren't you? And I would say, yes, I am a Christian. And then they would say something like, well, where do you go to church, and like, what do you believe? Now, you would think I would be happy about that, wouldn't you? Like, oh, hallelujah. You know what I was thinking at times? I'm already two hours behind, and now I've got to stop and give the gospel. I don't have time for this. Now, listen, I'm just being transparent. I was more concerned about the job and getting the work done than I was about the souls of people who were asking me, hey, what do you believe? Now, to try to justify myself somewhat, I would always drop a brush or drop a tool, and I would definitely make that a priority. But there were times when the incidentals of life, that which was not as important, took preference over the souls of men. And this is exactly where Jonah was at. There were souls being saved. There were souls who were repenting, and he's worried about a plant. It causes us to ask, what evokes our passion? What angers us? Lord, I need my car. I can't afford a new oven. I can't believe I'm stuck in such bad traffic. Why is my job so frustrating? And listen, I'm not trying to be overly pious here. I'm not suggesting that it's unspiritual to be concerned about these things. What I am saying is that as we grow in anger over such transitory issues, we drain ourselves of the energy and the motivation and the compassion which fuels the urgent concern that we should have for people. And when we get our priorities right, the lesser things don't seem to bother us as much. For example, if I'm alone in my truck and I am in bad traffic, I have a tendency to complain about traffic. Anybody else have that problem? I've told you this before. Good. I'm glad you're honest. I complain and moan about how bad people drive, how slow cars move, and how much time I'm wasting. And I'm very good at it. 
But if I am with someone in my truck, and let's say I'm with someone and we're having a spiritual conversation, or I'm sharing the gospel, and I'm stuck in traffic, you know what? That time becomes a blessing. Because the more that red light stays red, the more time I have to talk to somebody. Isn't it amazing how your perspective can change? I actually am excited. I don't even think about traffic. I don't even think about who's on the road or how slow or fast they're driving. If, if I'm engaged with someone, it changes the whole perspective of what you think and how you consider people. More time to talk, more time to minister, more time to share the gospel. But being self-absorbed and worldly concerned causes us to lose sight of God's mandate to reach the lost with the gospel. I think Robertson McQuilkin posits a very sobering thought for us to meditate on, and he says this, and I quote, A world, no matter how lost, will not move me to action while I am mired in self-love. On the other hand, once I'm freed to make choices on the basis of compassion for others, the need of lost men and women does indeed become compelling. And what more compelling need is there than billions of people who today face a Christless eternity? The terrifying lostness that envelops most in this world, pressing them with inexorable acceleration toward the blackness of hell, if this does not move us to action, what will? You see, I bring this up because this is the exact point that God was trying to drive home to Jonah. And look at verse 11. When he says finally, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals? In other words, what God is saying is this, Jonah, you've experienced the height of elation, the depths of despair over a single transitory plant. Yet there are 120,000 souls in Nineveh who are destined to perish unless they repent. And these are people who literally don't know the difference between their right and left hand, meaning that there is spiritual and moral ignorance in this city, and they were repenting, and they were coming to saving faith. It's like God is saying, yes, Jonah, man is culpable for his spiritual bondage, but I, the Lord, am the one who has compassion towards sinners. Jonah, I had compassion on you. Is it not right to show mercy and compassion on other people? Is it not right to rejoice infinitely more over the salvation of men's souls than over the shade that is provided by a single plant? And Jonah, even the animals here are worth rejoicing over more than this plant. So God's final question to Jonah reveals not only the glorious motive for God's saving grace, but also its scope. That God can look with saving pity on even the most wretched and wicked. Praise the Lord for that. What I want you to notice now, though, however, is this narration, because this narration now comes to an abrupt end. You see, God's probing question to Jonah remains unanswered, and we don't know how Jonah responded. Did Jonah capitulate and admit his sinful self-centeredness? Did he repent of his begrudging attitude? Well, the story doesn't tell us what Jonah did. We don't have a clue. There's no sequel to this book that's coming out next month. The canon of Scripture is closed forever. 
So what are we to make of this? Is this just an ambiguous prophetic book that just kind of leaves us hanging in the middle of nowhere? Does this abrupt ending signal that there's really not a point to this story? And the answer is not a chance. And I say this because the most important verse in this book is really perhaps the one that wasn't written. It is verse 12. That's the verse that God gets us to here. You see, the Lord doesn't answer Jonah because he leaves it to us to answer this question. You see, verse 11 leaps off the pages of Scripture. It grabs us and it pulls you and I immediately into this narrative and it forces us to consider verse 12. What's implied at the end of this narrative is really what is important to us. You see, God is not so concerned that we know how Jonah responded. What he is concerned about is how we might respond to the same question. How do we respond to God's merciful grace when he calls those whom we might find difficult or undeserving? Are we happy about that? Are we glad for that? How do we respond when we're called out of our comfort zone or we're severely inconvenienced for the sake of another soul? Would we write our response to God in verse 12 by saying, Yes, Lord, I'm willing to show mercy and compassion even to those who may work against me. And I would do it for the sake of their eternal souls. I'm willing to offer all I have for the cause of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or would we say, well, Lord, I love you, but I'll leave your love for all the nations to you. My desire is to see you bless myself and those around me. You see, in verse 11, God is really patiently interrogating us. But we should never assume that God's patience and grace towards us diminishes his sovereignty and supreme authority over men and over the nations. And I think John Calvin summarizes how we're to respond to this truth. And this is what he writes, and I quote, Therefore, since God claims to himself the right of governing the world, a right unknown to us, let it be our law of modesty and soberness to acquiesce in his supreme authority regarding his will as our only rule of justice and the most perfect cause of all things, that universal overruling providence from which nothing flows that is not right, though the reasons thereof may be concealed. You see, God's question really captures the very intention of the book of Jonah. And the issue is that of God's grace and mercy. And just as Jonah's provision was the shade of the vine which he did not deserve, the Ninevites' provision was a deliverance that they didn't deserve based upon a repentance that they did not fully understand. And it's God's wish for his creation to go towards salvation, not towards destruction. And God will work to see that salvation is accomplished according to his sovereign and electing will. Listen to the words of G.V. Smith who says, God will and does act in justice against sin, but his great love causes him to wait patiently, to give graciously, to forgive mercifully, and to accept compassionately even the most unworthy people in the world to experience the grace of God and not be willing to tell others of his compassion is a tragedy all must avoid. 
Messengers of God can neither limit the grace of God nor control its distribution, but they can prevent God's grace from having an effect on their own lives. End of quote. How wide is God's mercy? As wide as the redemption offered through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if anyone comes to the Savior pleading for the mercy of God, that sinner will find mercy wide enough to enter into eternal life. And it's true, and it will always be true, that the cross of Christ beckons us to lift our eyes above our petty self-centeredness and selfishness to see always the glory of God's grace as he looks with mercy and compassion on those who are yet lost, on those who he has yet not called to himself. And how can we not look on the lost with similar mercy and compassion? We should be committed followers of Jesus Christ. We should love the world in his name. And we should offer to any and all sinners the mercy and compassion and the grace of God that he has shown us. And may our answer in verse 12 be this. Yes, Lord, we praise you for your compassion on all who repent before you and are drawn to you through your irresistible grace. And we will labor always to show mercy and compassion and grace to those whom you desire to set your affections upon. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this narrative in Jonah. Lord, we know the word of God is always practical and sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, being able to divide spirit and truth, being able to give us, Lord, those directions, that path that we need to walk as believers. And we know, Lord, in this sin-cursed world that even though we have regenerated hearts, even though we are new creatures in Christ, that that old nature wars against us and that we often have a propensity to be self-centered and selfish, to think more about our own comfort, our own desires, our own wishes than we do for others, especially those whom we deem not worthy of the grace that you might show them. But Lord, we know that for all who repent, there are none who are beyond your reach. There are none who are beyond the saving grace of Christ. And Lord, that you will draw to yourself a people that you desire and that you will not allow anything or anyone to pluck them out of your hand. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to repent of those times that we have been self-centered and been prejudiced in our thinking and in our actions and attitudes towards others and that you would give us the heart of Christ and that as we see evil in this world and as we see people who are in the midst of doing evil and practicing evil, that we would first and foremost have pity, realizing that they are walking in darkness, they are blinded to the truth of your word, and that their greatest need is not condemnation from us, but rather the mercy of bringing the gospel to them. And Lord, knowing that any vengeance is for you and you alone. And so Lord, we thank you for the lessons that we learn in this wonderful book. And Lord, through this prophet, we see how serious your desire is to save those who are yet lost. And I pray that we would never again inadvertently or consciously stand in the way of all that you desire and that we might be again ambassadors for you in every way that we can. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.